Hello, it is 19th of May 2019 and this is episode 102 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. So how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? I've been getting lots of good Star Wars content in my brain over the last few weeks because um, I have finished reading Queen's Shadow, which we're going to talk about this week. And I've also finished listening to Jedi Lost, which I think is really awesome. And I'm really excited for Kirsty to listen to it so we can discuss it. And also something that Kirsty doesn't know yet. I have just purchased the audiobook for Dark Disciple. So Ooh. that's going to be next up for me after Master and Apprentice. So yeah, it's Yay. happening. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's one of my favourite Star Wars books. So hopefully we can discuss that pretty soon. Hopefully you like it as much as yeah. I do. Oh, good. Yeah, no, I hope so too. Um, Asajj is in Jedi Lost. And it's really a character I've never experienced much before because I haven't really seen the Clone Wars. But I really liked her in Jedi Lost. And I was like, yeah, I want more of this character. So yeah, I'm sure that Dark Disciple is somewhat predicated on you having knowledge of the character from the Clone Wars and other media. But hopefully it will also allow enough background to ease like a noob like me in so that I don't feel completely disorientated. Um, yeah, I think it works as a standalone. It provides enough background information for you to kind of get the context of the different relationships. Okay. But cool. I think reading, listening to Jedi Lost will have helped you in terms of like that relationship with her and Dooku. Yeah. No, I feel like I got a good sense of what was going on there so I think Jedi Lost is at the very start of their relationship mm. so yeah it's probably quite a good touch point and I know you've also been doing some Star Wars reading Kirsty. Uh, well I was just on Queen Shadow this week kind of getting that wrapped up in time for our discussion um, mm-hmm. I've also bought the Making of Solo book that was just released last month um, oh nice so hopefully we can kind of talk about that in the next few weeks since it's going to have been a year since the release of Solo and of course, today it's the 20th anniversary of The Phantom Menace. Oh, wow. Is it literally today today? Yes. So, oh my God. So discussing Queen Shadow will be apt for that since obviously it draws on a lot of what we saw in that first movie. Yeah, no, of course. So it's been 20 years since The Phantom Menace came out in cinemas. And yeah, I was just wondering, I think we should probably both give a little piece about our thoughts on that movie and our relationship with it um like I saw it quite recently because I watched it on the flight to Chicago which is really cool so it'd been a while since I'd seen it and I really enjoyed it and I think I found it to be more enjoyable and fun than I actually remembered because I do quite like the prequels but they're definitely not the favorite part of Star Wars for me and yeah I found the plot quite compelling I enjoyed the characters and yeah, especially it was great to be reminded of what a badass Padme was. She is such a hero in that movie. And I, I found I liked watching it, thinking of her as the protagonist. It made it even more enjoyable for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I watched it sometime last year, um, but it's not super fresh in my mind. But reading Queen Shadow this week has helped with that because it builds so much mm. on, especially obviously the dynamic between Padme and her handmaidens. And there are references to Qui-Gon and Anakin and other things. So, um, yeah, it's 
it's a strong memory in my mind of being nine years old and going to watch that in the cinema because it was the first Star Wars movie I ever saw on the big screen. Um, I didn't have any notion of the concept of fandom, so it took a while for me to even... And, you know, when you're nine years old, you just don't care about things like beyond your own experience of a movie. So I thought it was great. Um, and I loved Attack yeah. of the Clones when that came out too. And I didn't really have this idea that there was this backlash out there against the prequels beyond like maybe adults in my life being like oh i prefer the old ones but <laughs> yeah i think just having a sense of perspective um but i think there's been like a real renaissance lately of people celebrating the prequels and i guess it's just people our age growing up and kind of having more of a voice in the fandom and saying actually we like these things and we can recognize the flaws and things and also find them lots of fun so yeah no exactly so i think like you say the people who were children when the phantom menace came out then are the people who are running the blogs and are high profile on social media and are shaping fandom effectively so it makes sense that a lot of those people are going to be very pro prequels because what the original trilogy was to the people who are spooing the prequels when they first came out, the prequels are now to this new generation. And yeah, it just is interesting, isn't it? So it makes me think, what's the landscape going to look like in 20 years for the sequels? You know, is it suddenly going to be like, the sequels are the best part of Star Wars and stuff? Like, it's going to be very interesting to witness that. Yeah, I think what strikes me when I think about The Phantom Menace is that obviously we it, we got it without the context of what was going to come afterwards so people had like yes. broad strokes of what they thought might happen with the the prequels that led up into the original trilogy but in terms of like the actual aesthetic and t- t- tone of those movies that are so different from the original trilogy it's like hard to overstate how bold george was being with those choices um mm. It's so different <laughs> from anything that we see in the original trilogy that people must have been like, wait, what? This isn't Star Wars. Um, but obviously it is. And it's been like recontextualized over and over since then and shaped so much of what we now understand about the original trilogy and those characters and those relationships that, I don't know, just looking back at it, I'm like, wow, George did a really bold thing here. Um, he must have known on some level that people would kind of be skeptical or some people would hate it and he's he's done lots of interviews with people like just saying yeah this was the story that i was going to tell and i really really wanted to show anakin skywalker as this young good boy yeah i have to admire him for like sticking to his guns and telling the story that he wanted to tell yeah no same like i think george lucas whatever people think slash say about him he really is a true auteur and he has very strong defined ideas about what sort of art he wants to create and what's meaningful to him and he's always stuck to his guns in that respect which i really admire um and yeah on a slightly different note like rewatching the phantom menace recently i was struck by how incredibly beautiful it is it really looks amazing and yeah just that first shot when they're going into the gungan city is just awe inspiring it's wonderful and thinking back to my own childhood memories is actually funny because I don't remember seeing The Phantom Menace in the cinema and I think I might not have even seen it in the cinema I might have been on VHS when it came out that way but I do have very clear memories of playing The Phantom Menace video game (laughs) 
because there was a level where it was sort of the escape from like the docking bay I guess at the beginning when Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are running away from the Namidians and yeah I just have clear clear memories of that level being impossible and just dying over and over and over again (laughs) I was like a young child as well so of course I wasn't very competent but yeah (laughs) I still burn from that a bit (laughs) yeah it's funny how those memories can get stuck in like yeah, you so you're not sure if you watched it in the cinema or not. Yeah, I can't remember. Okay. I have a feeling I didn't, to be honest, because there wasn't a cinema in my hometown growing up. Mm. So to go to the cinema was a very significant undertaking and also quite expensive. So we did it only very rarely. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we were the same, but I think for that one, my dad was like, oh, no, it's the new Star Wars. We're going to see it. So we all went together. But yeah, it was like, you have to go over to the bigger town. Yeah, no, exactly. It was like a 40-minute car journey or something. (laughs) Yeah, my hometown sucks. (laughs) Identity undisclosed. Um, But yeah, no, so fond memories of The Phantom Menace, and I hope everyone can use this opportunity to reflect on what's awesome about that film, because there are lots of awesome aspects to it. Yeah, and we'll come back to that later when we talk about Queen Shadow, because... You can't talk about Queen Shadow without talking about The Phantom Menace. So, Yeah, no, 100%. You really... it. Queen Shadow basically hinges on you knowing The Phantom Menace quite well. So, yeah, we will be returning to this topic shortly. Okay, so let's move into the news section. So there really hasn't been much news, <laughs> to be honest. Um, although there has been one big story... And that big story is that three new Star Wars movies have been dated and they've also been confirmed to be from Game of Thrones creators Benioff and Vice. So basically this news came out in two parts. The first part was when Disney released its schedule for the next few years which included three untitled Star Wars movies. So yeah, would you care to read out that Variety report, Kirsty? Sure. The news comes as part of a larger shift in release dates unveiled by Walt Disney Studios. The company is moving around the debuts of various movies it inherited after buying the bulk of 21st Century Fox's film and television assets in a $71.3 billion mega-merger. As part of the great release date shakeup, Disney announced there will be a trio of untitled Star Wars entries. These will hit theatres after Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker brings the Skywalker spin-off saga to a close this December. The first of the new three films will hit the big screen on December 16th, 2022. There will be two other follow-ups that will premiere in the Christmas Corridor on December 20th, 2024 and December 18th, 2026. The news means that Disney is poised to dominate the busy holiday movie-going season for the foreseeable future, as it alternates between Avatar and Star Wars films. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun. Okay. So, yeah. No, it's just I made that stupid noise because just the year 2026, man. Thinking about how far away that feels. Yeah, realistically, it's probably not that far away, really. And it will get here before we know it. It's a bit terrifying, but it is what it is. So, yeah, we have three untitled films, to be sure. Yeah, and I don't have the... Was it... Oh, it's the one afterwards where Bob Iger confirmed that at least that first one is Benny Off and Weiss as opposed to the Ryan Johnson movies. 
Exactly, yeah. So basically that news came out and then about a week later we had a separate report which was from some boring industry summit. <laughs> but clearly not that boring because Iger did confirm some interesting news. Um, and yeah, would you care to read this one out as well, Kirsty? Yeah. Um, Bob Iger confirmed that the next Star Wars film following The Rise of Skywalker will be from Game of Thrones showrunners David Benioff and D.B. Weiss coming in 2022. We did a deal with Benioff and Weiss who were famous for Game of Thrones and the next movie that we release will be theirs, Iger said. And we're not saying anything more about that. So yeah, 2022. Yep, exactly. So yeah, like obviously Benioff and Weiss are very much men of the moment right now because Game of Thrones is the hot topic, so to speak. Um, and the finale airs tonight um, and it will have aired by the time this episode is released and put out there. Um, and yeah, I think views and opinions on them are very strong to say the least. Um, but yeah, how does this like news make you feel Kirsty? How do you respond to it? I guess I figured that they would take a break. They've kind of been hinting that way for a while. Mm-hmm. But I didn't expect it to be three years long. Yeah, it is a long time. Obviously, we've got TV shows to go off and enjoy in the meantime. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know, we've all been quite spoiled lately, haven't we? We're going to see a Star Wars movie in the cinemas every year. Yeah, and it's true because like before this gap the longest way we'll have had will have been the one between solo and episode nine which is about not 18 months something like that which if i feel like it's gone really fast to be honest um but i think three years there is the danger of dragging although i do think to myself that if the movie is coming out in 2022 then that means that Presumably they'll be casting and actually shooting the thing in 2020, which is next year. Yeah. So, like, realistically, in terms of when we'll start getting proper, solid news about these movies, it might even be less than a year from now, which suddenly makes it feel much more immediate. But, yeah, just as a plain fact, we are not going to get another Star Wars movie until 2022. That does feel quite intimidating. It doesn't, it doesn't, because like, if you think about it, we've got The Mandalorian coming up, we've got the Cassian Andor series, I think there was another comment from Iger that hinted that they were planning a third live-action series for Disney+. Plus. Um, yes. We've got Star Wars Resistance, the animated series, we've got all these various books and stuff that are sure to follow, and I'm expecting relatively soon after episode nine um some kind of sequel trilogy tie-in whether that's animated or live action that's going to free up that entire timeline then so they've got plenty of stuff to play around with in the meantime yeah i don't think there's going to be any shortage of content it's just going to be different types of content and i really do think it's the right decision and it's a smart decision because I don't know, like Marvel, obviously it's been hugely successful and I don't mean to understate that, especially financially, it's just obscene how much money those movies earn. But ultimately they do feel very serialised in the way that television feels serialised. And I don't think that type of serial quality feels right for Star Wars in terms of the frequency of the content. And so I, I can see the value in spacing it out more 
and really having each movie feel like a very special, unmissable event, which I think is definitely what they're going to be going for with these movies. They're trying to make them prestige viewing. Yeah, it's an interesting strategy for Disney because obviously it's very different, like you say, from Marvel. But I think they've realised that Star Wars is quite a different beast. Um, And Iger has reflected publicly on how he probably should have waited a little longer for Solo to get out there. He was the one who said it was my responsibility we decided to push through with Solo and get it released in May as opposed to waiting until December. Yeah, which is clearly a mistake in retrospect. I think if they had waited until December for Solo, I think it would have done so much better. Maybe. It's hard to tell. You know, I I like Solo a lot, but I know that it's not lots of people's favourite. Um, mm. A lot of people will say, oh, it's, you know, it was the backlash to The Last Jedi, which also I don't really buy because they're totally different movies. Um, but this is kind of another part of that, I guess, that Star Wars is seen as... Um, I'm speaking as someone who is not emotionally invested in the MCU. I watch those movies, but I also come away with it being like, oh yeah, that was fun. Probably never going to watch that movie again, but you know, whatever. Um, but they just seem very different to me in terms of how Star Wars is like viewed as this very cohesive thing that is very important to people's sense of like cultural mythology and whereas Marvel has more room almost to kind of branch off into all these different areas. I don't know if yeah. I'm reading that wrong, but how else do we explain the fact that Marvel can release several different movies a year and it seems like there's no sense of fatigue, in terms of the general yeah. audience at least? No, like I, I think that's it, really, because ultimately the only type of Star Wars that's been indisputably proven to be like a sure thing in terms of financial returns and like public interest and status is the Skywalker saga like that very specific type of story that is about this specific bloodline with these like through line characters that is a successful formula but then when they try to spin off with like slightly more tangential characters like and Han is obviously like a very important character, but he isn't like the protagonist of any of the films. And then when you try to give him his own movie, it obviously didn't work quite as well. And I think they maybe took it for granted, following the Marvel example, that it would have worked. It's like, oh, it doesn't. Oh, okay. And so I think they've probably had to go back to the drawing board to some extent and think, okay, so what type of Star Wars movie can we make? that will be this huge event and be part of the cultural mythos and really hit the public and grab their attention because it clearly wasn't solo and yeah I think there's lots of exciting possibilities and I'm not counting on anything specific in terms of the type of story they're going to tell or the setting they're going to use I know a lot of people want to see something in the old republic but I really don't care as long as it's a good interesting story with compelling characters that justifies its existence I'll be down for it. Yeah. yeah. I'm also trying really hard not to judge these writers or showrunners or whatever you want to call them on Game of Thrones because I'd like to think that's Mm. a very different beast. But at the same time, some of the things they've talked about in terms of their approach to storytelling do concern me. Um, You know, they've given interviews before where they've said they don't believe in themes for stories. (laughs) They belong in eighth grade book reports. (laughs) <laughs> i can't even laugh oh dear like i'm like how can you say that out loud as a writer 
Like, that seems incredibly arrogant to me. <laughs> to be like, oh, themes, we don't need those. Uh, it's like, okay, so what are you trying to say? Because I know people yeah. talk about Game of Thrones a lot in terms of, oh, it's subverting the fantasy genre. But subverting it to what end? Just to piss people off? I don't think so. I'd like to not think so. Mm. There's got to be something that you're saying rather than just trashing something that's established. Yeah, no, I agree. And that is a danger. Like that, they would just come in and make something that's spectacular and impressive and has a huge scale, but ultimately risks feeling kind of empty and like there's nothing at the core of it. And I think that would be very, very dangerous if they did make something along those lines. Because, yeah, the reason Star Wars is so remembered and so loved is because it does have those very real, very human, beloved themes of like family and compassion and love and all these ideas. They're so integral to Star Wars. And I think if you take any of that away, you're basically kind of gutting it. So they need to give it some sort of heart in the middle. Yeah, and I'm not saying they're incapable of doing that. It's just I haven't... Mm. It's probably too early to hear them speak in interviews about Star Wars and why they're interested in that kind of project and why they think they mm. were chosen for it. They don't have to tell us anything about the specific story they're telling, but in terms of what they value and love about Star Wars, um, I'm just wondering what it is. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, I think I would feel very reassured if they would come out and, like you say, just talk about Star Wars in a very general sense, about what they value about it and what they see in it. Um, so I hope that happens in due course, and I'm sure it will eventually. So it'll probably be one of the first things they do in terms of laying the groundwork for, yay, we're the new Star Wars guys. Um, and I also feel that people like Kathleen Kennedy and... Pablo and Ryan Johnson and everything who are all people we know that Benioff and Weiss have been talking to about coming on board to look Lucasfilm and working on these movies. I like to think that through that collaborative process everyone will have the common ground of being like okay what are we saying here? What's the point of this story we're hoping to tell in these new movies? Mm. I also want to say like I have quite a complicated relationship with Game of Thrones and I've had to stop watching it a couple of times um mm. my husband and our friends watch it so it kind of like sucks you back in <laughs> but <laughs> i've actually like a couple times i've been like oh this show isn't for me anymore um and that mostly comes down to how i think they treat the female characters and the characters of color and the lack thereof right. of characters of color it's a show seriously lacking mm. in diversity in terms of like actual speaking named characters um so, yeah, that's another concern. And I know I'm far from the only person with that concern. So if we're talking about what we value in Star Wars, and obviously we've talked a lot before about how we want to see more female writers, more writers of colour. Um, many of them wise aren't known for working with diverse creators. Um, yeah. Game of Thrones has, I think, maybe had one or two directors that have been female. Um mm. There are no female writers on staff for season eight. And in my opinion, it shows. Mm. So I'm just interested to see the rest of the team that they pick or how much say they get over that versus the story group or Kathleen Kennedy. I don't know how that stuff works. Yeah, I, again, I really, really hope that through working with these other people like Kathleen Kennedy, 
that there will be a really strong effort made to actually be open to, okay, what sort of new voices, like new directors, new writers, new producers, can we bring in on board to this to like complement what we're trying to do and to bring their own experiences and their own insights to this story that we're looking at telling? Because I strongly doubt that Benioff and Weiss will be directing these movies. Like they are primarily producers and writers. We're kind of at the point where I don't feel super confident in Kathleen Kennedy's own value of diversity in terms of who's telling these Mm. stories. Because it's been said for years now that they were looking for a female director and that's not materialised. So either they've approached quite a few people who've turned it down because the fandom's such a dumpster fire they don't consider it worth it. Or Mm. it's actually not a priority for them and they've just been kind of paying lip service to it. I know we have... um, female directors and directors of colour for The Mandalorian, but that's TV obviously, that's different. Mm. So I'll believe it when I see it. (laughs) I really think these new movies, I think this is going to be the test of, well, let's put your money where your mouth is, kind of, with Kathleen Kennedy, because as you say, she's been saying this for a long time about wanting to involve more women as like directors and writers, etc. And that has come through in certain areas like the books and the tv like they've definitely got much better with the representation of behind the scenes talent on the production crew which is very positive and great but it really hasn't filtered through to the movies at all yet so i think for this next wave of movies i really really want to see more representation there to be honest and i'll be disheartened if it's all white men again yeah and and so far that is what's been announced so yeah i just feel like <laughs> every time it's like okay wait wait for more good news and if you say something about it it's like well you don't know you could hope for the best it's like but i feel like we've been doing that forever <laughs> like are you waiting for us to, like skeletize or something yeah it's like we we are waiting that's what's happening we have been waiting And we've been told that this is coming down the pipeline, and yet it hasn't. So you could forgive us for being a little frustrated. Mm. You know, and and I say this as a white cis woman in fandom. You know, I have a tremendous amount of privilege in this discussion. Yeah, same. So it's it's just, like, if it's frustrating for me, I can't imagine what it's like for other people out there. Like, it's just, come on. If you say you value diversity, actually, yeah, show that. Don't say it. Um, and I don't think Benioff and Weiss, for for all the fact that you know they are they're big names at this point. Obviously, Game of Thrones is absolutely huge, so maybe that's mm. the reason that they were approached. But if there's nothing more to that, then it's like, oh, <laughs> okay. So it is just kind of about them being these white male faces who don't care about themes, <laughs> don't care about what they're saying. <laughs> Please prove me wrong. You know, it's just like they yeah. haven't said anything else to the contrary to like make me feel more confident. Yeah, like I do think that Benioff and Weiss are great producers. I love a lot about Game of Thrones, but it's like the cinematography, the costumes, the acting. Yeah. Um, not so much the writing, <laughs> at least these days. So. Yeah. Exactly. That's like where I think they definitely need support and they need other voices and other influences it's in terms of the creative side that's where I don't trust them so much I have a great deal of faith in them as producers because the logistics of running a show like Game of Thrones are absolutely insane 
Like, and it's extremely impressive what they manage to pull off every week in a TV show. But yeah, that doesn't like negate all these other factors and all these other concerns about them as creative forces. So yeah, try and do better Lucasfilm, please, please. <laughs> yeah, it's become a point of amusement for me watching every episode of Game of Thrones that comes out. They have that little segment afterwards where these writers like talk about what we've just seen on screen and they literally do talk about what we just saw on screen there's no discussion of <laughs> subtext or symbolism it's just like oh and then and then Daenerys did this and then John did this it's like we know we just watched it <laughs> it's like yeah what do you think about your own story you should be able to speak about this in depth and I don't know it, it's quite funny to me <laughs> No, it's like the worst Star Wars featurettes, basically, <laughs> where it's just like, ooh, and here's how we made the space horses. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I know, but what do they mean? Yeah, it's not even about just how that they do things. They literally, like, spell things out for you as if you didn't get what was going on in the scene. It's like, yeah, no, I I understand. Uh, why don't you talk about why you made that choice? <laughs> I don't know. It's... Maybe they record them at the end of a very long day. <laughs> Yeah, brain's not fully functional yet. Yeah, but it's not the most compelling discussion. But Agreed. <laughs> okay, cool. Then we'll move on to the final thing we're going to cover, which is a full synopsis of the t- Galaxy's Edge tie-in, Crash of Fate. Would you care to read out the synopsis, Kirsty? Sure. Izzy and Jules were childhood friends, climbing the spires of Batu, inventing silly games and dreaming of adventures they would share one day. Then, Izzy's family left abruptly, without even a chance to say goodbye. Izzy's life became one of constant motion, travelling from one world to the next, until her parents were killed and she became a low-level smuggler to make ends meet. Jules remained on Batu, eventually becoming a farmer like his father, but always yearning for something more. Now, 13 years after she left, Izzy is returning to Batu. She's been hired to deliver a mysterious parcel, and she just wants to finish the job and get gone. But upon arrival at Black Spire Outpost, she runs smack into the one person who still means something to her after all this time. Jules. The attraction between them is immediate. Yet despite Jules seeming to be everything she's ever needed, Izzy hesitates. How can she drag this good-hearted man into the perilous life she's chosen? Jules has been trying to figure out his future, but now all he knows for certain is that he wants to be with Izzy. How can he convince her to take a chance on someone who's never left the safety of his homeworld? When Izzy's job goes wrong, the two childhood friends find themselves on the run, and all their secrets will be revealed as they fight to stay alive. I am so excited about this book. <laughs> Same. This is right up our alley. Yeah, no hearing this, like, it sounds awesome, and yeah, it just makes me really glad that they're going all in with Star's romance like this. Yeah, no, me too. Um, a lot of my favourite Star Wars books in the new canon, Lost Stars, Dark Disciple, and, and even Phasma, because obviously I have a big ship in that one. Yeah, they all include romance or at least like these intense interpersonal relationships and people like figuring out what they want and how they come from all these different perspectives, but ultimately forge this connection. And I think that's what Star Wars is about for me anyway, and obviously for you too. So this sounds like a treat. Um, I can't wait for it to be released. So I know we were like skeptical of the Galaxy's Edge tie-ins, but I think there's going to be a few that's really great because there's this one and then there's, what's it called? Uh, Black Spire? 
Yes, that's right. That's the one by Delilah Dawson. Yes, so Vi and Cardinal will be in that one too. So, yeah, quite a few upcoming novels that we're interested in. Yeah, I'd say I'm more excited for this than I am Alphabet Squadron. Oh, isn't that coming out super soon? I think so. Let me double check. It's hard to know what that one's really about beyond like that premise of who the squadron is. Mm. Yeah, it, it's hard to say like what kind of story it'll actually turn out to be. Whereas this is like giving you a clear like, oh, it it's a it's a romance book, um, and the writer has been on the Star Wars show talking about what she loves about romances and Star Wars in terms of the relationships in the movies, um, the Clone Wars. So they're being very open about that, which I appreciate. And she said mm-hmm. that, um, you know, she she loves a bit of angst, but she also likes a happy ending. That's what she wanted yeah. for her Star Wars romance. So it's also kind of nice to know it'll turn out well in the end. <laughs> yeah, it's like a safety blanket, which we all need sometimes. And yeah, I also like that it's the dude who's the one to have been left at home and he's had the more like mundane and standard life. Whereas the girl has gone off and like had all this these chaotic circumstances and been on these big adventures. I think that's a bit of a different dynamic from what you sometimes find in these romance stories. So yeah, I approve. Yeah, I guess. I mean, if you're coming back to like the very original Star Wars, that was kind of like Luke and Leia. She was out doing all these exciting mm. things and he was the bored farm boy dreaming of something bigger. Yeah, you're right. That's really a good point. I think I was thinking much more of like non-Star Wars like stuff. But yeah, in terms of Star Wars, it has good precedence for that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I checked in Alphabet Squadrons coming out on 4th of June. Okay. Okay, cool. So let's move on to our spotlight discussion, which today is going to be on Queen Shadow. So yeah, I think we should probably start off with our overall thoughts on this book, which obviously follows Padme like in that time period between the Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. So it basically shows what happens just as she's finishing up as Queen of Naboo and illustrating that transition into Senator and what that means for her and like the sort of activities that she gets involved in and what happens to her, etc, etc. So yeah, Kirsty, would you like to give a rundown of your thoughts? Um, yeah, so my thoughts are kind of mixed, honestly. Because if I mm-hmm. if I talk about it in terms of the essentials, I liked the book and enjoyed a lot of things about it. I didn't love it. And I really wanted to love it because I'd been waiting a long time for a Padme novel. Sure. Um, but on the, it's hard because on the one hand, I went into it thinking... I think we talked about it before when we were like first hearing about the fact that there was going to be a Padme novel and who was writing it. And I kind of had this like little list of things in my mind that I was hoping that she would get around to covering. Um, but obviously I wouldn't have like kicked up a fuss if she hadn't. But because I knew the writer and like things that she valued in her own writing and what she wanted for the, the Handmaidens, because Padme is her favourite character... Um, you know, I was saying things like, I really wanted queer handmaidens and mm. and I got them. So I was yes. happy about that. Um I got lots of beautiful descriptions of Padme's outfits. I got references to the Phantom Menace Anakin and Qui-Gon. Um so all of these things were great and I really liked those little details. But in terms of a whole, it didn't add up to a story that I loved. And I do feel like it lacks a compelling narrative in terms of like what's actually going on here. Yeah, 
No, I felt quite similarly, although I think I might have leaned a bit more negative than you did. Like, there's definitely stuff to enjoy in the novel, and I think if you love Padme, it's 100% worth reading, because it's lots of Padme content, so it cannot be faulted in that respect. But, yeah, unless you're already invested in that character, I'm not sure how much I could like recommend it to people, to be honest. And... Yeah, I think the main area where it falls short for me is really in the plot, just because there isn't really much of a narrative there. It's more like a series of episodes of stuff that happens to her, basically, and like her finding her footing in this new position of being a senator. Um, And I kind of found it a bit weird because early on there's this premise where... Like Padme needs to travel to Coruscant to like become a senator and to get to grips with that, but she also wants to have a presence on Tatooine and to try and investigate ways of like the slavery problem and what can we do about this if anything, and she also wants to find out what happened to Shmi, for example, mm-hmm. and so she sends like Sabe to go and do that on her behalf, and that whole like plot thread just like pieces out really early with no real like resolution to it and it basically finishes with nothing really having been achieved and it's like oh okay then and I think that's probably the point to show that Padme's power is very limited and in certain situations like that one there's just really not much she can do about it but it just felt a bit deflating does that make sense no it does um yeah the part that i was most interested in to, at the beginning was the stuff about sabe and tonra on tatooine um mm-hmm. and obviously what evolves into a romantic relationship between those two characters um which i think is helped by the fact that in the movie they're played by richard armitage and Kira knightley so pretty people yes. in per- period drama vibes yes please um <laughs> but yeah it was like i came away with it being most intrigued by Sabe and what she was going to do because obviously that epilogue hints at more interesting things to come but that's the thing it like got really interesting towards the end um yeah as opposed to yeah with these plot points that seem to be set out from the beginning and I I don't really have a problem with her failing on Tatooine because like you say I think it speaks to Padme's growing frustrations of what the senate can do and it kind of hints at what I mean she doesn't know the truth about Palpatine at that point but it's obviously planting these seeds for the fact that he's playing this game with people and like supposedly has all these mutually beneficial relationships with those senators and other politicians, but really he's calling all the shots. I appreciated the references to Shmi, but at the same time it was like that, again, it didn't really go anywhere, so it was like a weird kind of nod to that and um, the fact that obviously we've talked about this before with Padme in The Phantom Menace being quite naive about the realities of slavery in the Republic and then so this it makes sense in a way that this follows on from that and she's like oh I really want to do something to make a difference but then she can't and uh, I don't know it yeah you're right it just kind of goes nowhere. And I agree with you about that final part of the book being like perhaps the most compelling part of the whole thing because you have that situation where there's like a food supply crisis basically don't you on that planet and suddenly the senate has to mobilize to actually do something about it and to help and of course 
as usual with politics, it's not that simple and everyone's dragging their feet and people don't want to help and stuff. And I felt like I left with the feeling like I wish the whole novel had been about that situation and that you could have really explored the characters and stuff through that specific scenario. Yeah, so on, on paper, the idea of Sabe and Padme having the goal to sh- save Shmi is wonderful. Um, mm. And of course, we know that that can't be achieved because we have episode two. Um, we know that she gets freed another way. But I'm still not quite sure what she was going for with this story. Mm. Beyond showing that these are good people. Maybe that was the goal. Because there's a lot of emphasis on how wonderful Padme is. But in terms of like, maybe other people feel differently. Um Coming back to what you were saying at the beginning of the discussion, I am very emotionally invested in Padme. Um, mm. And my relationship with the prequels is quite complicated because as the prequels go on, as you were saying, you can look at The Phantom Menace and really see Padme as a protagonist. You can't really say the same for Revenge of the Sith. So no. in terms of like what I wanted out of this book for Padme, I really wanted an in-depth look at her perspective. Um... And I don't feel like I came away knowing the character much more. I know little things about her. I have these factoids and headcanons that the writer clearly felt strongly about adding in there. But if I compare it to, like, Leia, Princess of Ulron, there's not really a comparison for me in terms of what I came out of that book understanding about young Leia. I think that's exactly it. It basically reinforces the qualities that we already knew Padme to have. It doesn't really, I I feel, flesh her out that much. So you don't get a sense of her having much extra dimension than she does in The Phantom Menace. And I feel like that's a shame because while I love that character in The Phantom Menace, what I was really hoping for and wanted from this novel was to get to know her even better. Like I feel like in terms of depth of characterization and understanding Padme as a person, like Revenge of the Sith novelization, like did it in a really interesting compelling way because even though in the movie of that story Padme is very much a supporting character and she's there to like motivate Anakin pretty much in the novel it really does get into her head and give it and does a really good job of representing her perspective and what she values and who she is as a person and I feel like Queen Shadow just didn't get into the depths as much yeah, there were very few points of true vulnerability, which I found surprising given how much she was stressing that with these handmaidens, they're her closest friends. They're the people that she can be vulnerable with and honest with. Mm. She really does have to wear this mask the rest of the time. Um, there was one point that stuck, stuck out for me in terms of Padme talking about having a future romantic relationship after she was discussing Sabe and Tonra. She said, mm. I'm afraid that if someone breaks through, I'll let them and it would be catastrophic. Obviously, that resonates because we know what happens with Anakin later on. But yeah. but they were very small, isolated moments as opposed to over the course of the, the book really developing this character for me. Yeah. And like the only like other situation like of great like emotional awkwardness, shall we say, that she encounters is when there's that like other senator who is clearly infatuated with her and he misreads it and goes in for a kiss and she's like what the fuck no and like completely rightly pushes him away Mm. um and 
it was just like staged in a very like stiff way that yeah again it just reinforced this is the Padme from the Phantom Menace she's very right and just and proper in all things and yeah I don't know it just disappointed me a little yeah I thought that was interesting as well because well I guess we can't get into that too much because you haven't watched the Clone Wars but in terms of Clovis actually turning into quite an important relationship for Padme that's not yeah. that's not the end of them in terms of a potential romance. Let's just say that. So okay, yeah. But you wouldn't know it if you just read this because it kind of sounds like it's nipped in the bud and that's it. <laughs> yeah, it felt very final. Yeah, maybe that's the point. And good for Padme for standing up for herself. You know, it's not like I'm I'm disagreeing with her actions in that moment or whatever. But um, again, not sure what the point was. I mean, it's kind of similar to. Brea and Padme meeting. I was really excited about that. So I was like, wow, Leia's two moms together. We have that in canon now. How cool is that? Because obviously we knew that Padme had a relationship with Bail, and we see the beginning of mm. that in this book. And it starts off on quite a rocky start, actually. She's suspicious of him. And I was like, really intrigued by that at first. I wonder where that was going to go. And of course, pretty early on, it's kind of resolved as to what he was actually doing at that point. And spoiler alert, he wasn't trying to kill her or wasn't kind of part of any sinister plot. Um, and of course we know that because we know that Bail Organa's a good guy um, but yeah coming back to Bray and Padme it had all this potential but what do you come away from it with like just oh yeah these are two queens who are kind of bonding over their experiences of being a ruler but something about the way it was written felt very empty and forced to me yeah no I felt the same and it was obviously all there really for like prayer to have that line about how oh if I do eventually have a child and it's like oh yeah of course that's about Leia and stuff so I think sometimes it just felt like a bit obvious you know went for like obvious moments rather than organic things that might have felt a bit more compelling in real so yeah I think that's where some of the stiffness and artificiality came from but yeah, as you said, we have been quite negative, <laughs> but we, there are absolutely things in it that we enjoyed. And yeah, really what I enjoyed the most was the epilogue with Sabe and Tonra after Padme's death. And they're both, although especially Sabe, is like, okay, we need to sort this. We need to investigate this. Like what the hell happened? Like that is really cool. And that's fantastic setup for a sequel novel. So I really hope that happens at some point because I would want to see that story and the resolution to that mystery that they find because that has the potential to go in really interesting places. But yeah, we'll have to see what comes of that. Yeah, I loved getting that perspective because obviously, I mean, I just rewatched Revenge of the Sith when we're seeing her funeral procession and her parents walking there behind her. They're obviously devastated, but you have to wonder what all these people are thinking, like what the hell just happened? Like, they mm. they think that Anakin is dead. They think that Obi-Wan is dead. They see that the Chancellor has now become the Emperor. There's there's now an empire. How did Padme die? She was a healthy young woman, and all of a sudden she's not. So it must have been very confusing for the average person. Um, so I, I appreciated getting this, but again, it was at the end. <laughs> It kind of reminded me of the end of the solo movie where I was like, wow, Maul and Kira, I wonder what's going to happen there. And it's like, oh, wait, <laughs> there's no guarantee that they're actually going to pick this up and run with it. I'd like to think that they do mm. because with Star Wars, 
you can do that there's always potential to build on the story that comes before and obviously this novel is building on what came before but now i want that sabe novel and i'm like are we gonna get it is sabe too minor a character for them to do that like does she have that pull because she does for me i came away from this book with her as the most compelling character which i did not expect i thought it was going to be padme Mm. um but yeah so i just don't know if that's actually going to be something that they run with now because if not why set it up i guess it'll probably depend on how well queen shadow does well i think it's done well i think it's you know it's a new york times bestseller so oh is it really oh that's awesome yeah i I mean ahsoka was too and i think all the claudia gray novels are like star wars novels are popular so sure yeah yeah I, i just wonder if you know that could evolve into into something more time will tell i think on that front and um, what did you make of the scenes where Padme like goes home and interacts with her family and stuff? Like, h- how did you feel, especially about how they were handled in relation to the stuff with Brea and Padme? So the stuff about Padme having a new niece, rather than just like focusing on what was there on the page in front of me, it made me wonder about all the implications of that. And I'm sure this has crossed Lucasfilm Story Group's mind in terms of like, are the Nabaris out there during the sequel trilogy era? Mm, are luke and leia's cousins alive do they know that they're related to what is now the new supreme leader of the first order because that that ties into the stuff about sabe like how much do they figure out about what's going on on this galactic scale because they're not quite part of it and yet they're obviously they are in terms of like being related to these characters on the major playing field Mm. i don't know yeah, and no, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that's like a whole like other line of the family. Like that is very much blood related to the Skywalkers. But yeah, they've never really factored into anything since the prequels and they only ever factored into the prequels in a very peripheral way to the point that their main scene was literally deleted. Yeah. So yeah, I do I do think that's a rich area to explore though. I feel like that would be like a great angle for just like a novel. Like, what do you do if you're, like, the second cousin of the supreme leader of the galaxy? <laughs> you, like, do you go up to them and say, hey, can I have, like, job perks or something? It's weird. Yeah, there's all this stuff to emphasise that the prequel era really is fertile ground um, for connecting with the sequel trilogy, which they've done a little bit, especially in terms of, like, Luke referencing Darth Sidious and the fall of the Jedi, and then what they're whatever they're planning with palpatine for episode nine you know what we'll see when we get to it but yeah in terms of these these side characters who had deleted scenes um but obviously we know we're still there in canon we get that look at padme's father but what he stands for um how he's kind of at odds with a lot of what the other politicians stand for um and the idea of Naboo being this... Obviously, we we knew this, especially coming back to The Phantom Menace, in terms of like Naboo being a very pacifist um, planet, and then that filtering into Padme's own politics. But that's such a contrast with what we see on a galactic scale that you want more there, you know? Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, what did you make for the Palpatine stuff in the book? Uh, I just thought it was regular old Palpatine. 
yeah scheming pal- away pal- team palping yeah <laughs> i mean that stuff about senator bon terry who was friends with padme to start with and then they kind of drifted apart and then she like saw her talking on the hollow was the idea that she was talking to palpatine there i found that a bit strange and i didn't really understand what the book was getting at with that to be honest i'm not sure who else she could have been talking to because i thought the idea was that like palpatine had these various senators that he was kind of you know playing puppetry with um who else could it be but again, it was something that didn't really go anywhere. It was just kind of planting the seeds for what we know will come later within those prequel movies. Yeah. Like, which, again, like, it teases that almost more interesting stories because you can tell Padme is becoming rightly suspicious at certain points of Palpatine's motives and she doesn't quite trust him. And I think that comes through in Attack of the Clones as well, when you see Padme and Palpatine interacting in that movie. She's quite patronising towards her and she clearly doesn't like it. Rightly so. Um, but, yeah. I, I What I really hope is that there are more stories about Padme off the back of this and that, yeah, she's just explored more and hopefully explored more deeply because even though there are some reservations about this character, I do think there's lots of rich potential for stories there. And... Yeah, I I hope they're told. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was so excited about before this book. And we got a lot of things like, you know, Padme and R2 together, for example. Mm -hmm. I really loved that reminder that before R2 was Anakin's or Luke's, he was Padme's. Um, I love the little hints about Padme actually loving the thrill of the Handmaiden's decoy. Because that adds another layer to what you see in The Phantom Menace. Like, that there is this real risk to what they're doing. But these are young, smart girls who must enjoy that on some level. Must enjoy the fact that people underestimate them because they're wearing these pretty outfits and beautiful makeup and elaborate hairstyles. But it's all for a purpose. Um, You know, Mm. they're explicitly using it in ways, you know... And other politicians are using it in those ways to distract. Mon Mothma invites her to the gala to distract people from the true goals of it. Padme gets wise to that and then becomes part of that plot. I love those parts. I really loved, actually, the elaborate descriptions of Padme's outfits and hairstyles because that's one of my favourite parts of the prequels. I think for you, maybe it was a bit too much. (laughs) I think so, and I think probably because I'm more of like a visual person, Mm. I I found it harder to engage with it when it wasn't being presented to me like in a film like in an actual image you know when it was just descriptions Mm. maybe it just means I have a really bad imagination but I didn't take as much pleasure in reading the descriptions of the beautiful gowns as I did from actually seeing them because I love 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 seeing all of Padme's scenes in the prequels because she's wearing such gorgeous dresses all the time Actually, one of the main disappointments of Attack of the Clones for me is when she changes into that white outfit and she's then in that for the rest of the movie. Mm. So it's like, oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) I felt kind of cheated. Um, But yeah, like it was completely appropriate and exactly what a novel called Queen Shadow that is all about Padme needed to give us. It just, for my sensibilities, it didn't work quite as well. But I'm really happy it did for you. Yeah. I mean, it's complicated. It can, you know, similar to coming back to very personal reasons for liking and appreciating certain things in the story. 
um, I part of the reason I really resonated with Sabe or she resonated with me is that she is explicitly characterized as bisexual or pansexual and mm-hmm. has this romantic relationship with a man. That that was actually important to me to see that. Yeah. No, I can completely see that. Yeah, there's a lot to love here. I just think it doesn't quite come together for me. Um I'm wondering if other people feel the same way because I haven't really listened to any other reviews or read any other reviews of this book so I kind of wanted to just stick with my mind um, and what I felt about it Um, but maybe I'll read other things and it'll kind of soften my opinion of the plot Um, it's not like it was bad (laughs) it's just there were a Mm. lot of things that felt they were building up to something and then they didn't so in terms of like looking at the story overall, I'm like, wait, what was the narrative here? Like, um, the story feels very small, which again might have been the point because it's like kind of a lull between episode one and episode two for Padme. But also, I don't know when you when you meet Padme again in episode two, and there's such like a gulf between her and Anakin in terms of the crazy level of experience that they'll, they'll have had within those ten years. Um, you want to think of Padme as having been on all these amazing adventures in the meantime and how much she's grown as a person and yes part of that is her just coming into the role of senator but I want her to be more than her profession I I agree with that and I feel like that's the main problem for me is that she didn't really have a trajectory throughout the course of the book she was the same person at the end of it that she was at the start and yeah like for me that's just not what I want from a story from a book from a narrative basically I want the character to go on a journey and to really feel that tangible sense of evolution because really the only like obstacle is that people misjudge her and underestimate her is never like anything that's lacking within Padme herself because Padme is always awesome and always principled and always pretty much perfect and she's that way at the beginning and she's that way at the end pretty much she's just learnt a bit better how to navigate things to actually achieve some stuff and yeah it just meant it didn't feel as satisfying as I think it could have yeah and I think that's even reflected in the way I mean even with the other handmaidens kind of expected a certain amount of conflict obviously that it would be resolved at some point because these people are close and trusted friends that there was never any of that. It was that they all got along perfectly. <laughs> mm. Which, you know, as a former teenage girl, I don't know, people do fall out. Because they have yeah. you know, very intense feelings. And if you're that close to a group of friends, there can be issues sometimes. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be like depicted in like a bitchy way. Oh, no way. Or no, like, it's just like catty infighting or anything. But like it does build your relationships more when you have those like tense moments and like moments of conflict and disagreement behind you because you get to figure each other out more as people and you get to understand each other more and then you have to like negotiate those differences and come out the end slightly different and hopefully slightly improved and yeah just because everyone was always getting along and was always like really supportive and awesome to each other it again just lent to that sense of the whole thing feeling quite static and like there wasn't much growth yeah i think that what what that meant for me in terms of like getting to know the handmaidens was that they actually seemed pretty much interchangeable apart from sabe um at at Mm. the beginning of the book we were kind of introduced to them and we were told 
um, what each one was good at because on Naboo they obviously encourage children to grow up and figure out their talents and really focus on that and such an artistic emphasis but beyond that beyond what knowing what they were all good at I didn't feel like I knew much about them as personalities yeah no I felt exactly the same I thought that maybe that was the groundwork being laid for like a deeper exploration of them but then they all pretty much disappear and you like hear from them very occasionally later on but really all you have are those early moments where you learn oh this one is like a horticulturalist Mm -hmm. and studies plants these two are in a relationship and yeah Yeah. and this one loves children and stuff and all that's great and awesome and cool but again it just feels a bit flat and like it's just telling not showing Mm. yeah i mean i'm all for depictions of strong female friendships like that's one of the things i was really excited about going into this with but what i consider strong friendships are nuanced and complex and people can have falling outs and they make up and yeah again like you say it's not for the sake of like petty drama it's that those feel like authentic relationships um they can be very complicated and almost contradictory in many ways especially when these characters are working so closely together basically living in each other's pockets taking on each other's identities to an extent Mm. there's all kinds of potential there that i just don't feel was fully explored so that that's yeah, kind of what it comes down to for this book. I liked it, but I didn't love it, and I really wanted to. So that's a little disappointing for me. Whereas there are other Star Wars books that I go into it with very little expectation. I think it was just because we'd been waiting 20 years for a book about Padme. Mm. So it's hard not yeah. to get your hopes up. Exactly. And it's hard because almost any book is going to fall short of expectations built up over so long. But... Yeah, I don't think we should feel bad for having high expectations of this kind of book. And yeah, as I said, I just hope that there are more stories about Padme and that hopefully they have that stronger sense of narrative and maybe a bit more complexity and stuff like that going on. Yeah, same. And and I don't want to imply that our expectations were unreasonable because I feel like in terms of the layer books that we've gotten, they were exceeded. Like, I love oh, yeah. that character Easily. so much more now because of what we got in Bloodline and Leia Princess of Alderaan. So that was where I kind of thought things were going with this. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously it's a different writer and she'll have different priorities and just not quite my kind of thing, but totally in the sand if it's other people's. And I'm really happy for people who are big Padme fans who really love this book. Yeah, no, same. Like whenever a book makes people happy, that's something to be celebrated and appreciated. But yeah, like just quickly before we move before we move on i just want to reiterate how excited i am for you to read jedi lost no spoilers but there's lots of juicy stuff going on in it you know what? yeah i wish i could i have lots of feelings i wish i could read it because i'm really not an audiobook person yeah uh, and obviously that's the only option we have so i've seen comments from other people like oh I- i'm really loving this story but it's hard for me to focus on it and that's kind of the way i've tried audiobooks in the past and um it's just harder for me to like pay attention and focus on it because mm. you're absorbing it in a different way. Yeah, no, I did find it a struggle as well because I usually do not listen to them. So yeah, you kind of have to train yourself to sort of tune into what they're saying and you need to listen really carefully. It's not like listening to a podcast where you can kind of phase in and out. For an audiobook, you really do need to be listening to every word. Mm. 
Well, I, I'm actually going to have an unfair advantage on you, though, because I'm actually re-listening to it okay. before we discuss it. Because A, I enjoyed it that much, and B, because it is kind of hard to follow when listening, I wanted to have that greater understanding of what was going on. So, Well, I'm glad that you will, because that'll make for a better discussion overall, and you can remind me of things if I've somehow <laughs> blanked over a certain scene or whatever. Um, cool. Yeah, I'm excited to get into that. Yep. Awesome. Okay, right. So that's all the non-spoilery stuff out of the way. Um, Today we just have a very brief spoiler section because, yeah, there's a new article that's come out that's worth discussing but it won't take very long. So, yeah, here is the spoiler siren. I shouldn't. Do it. Right, okay, and so it's been a bit thin on the ground, spoiler-wise, for a while, to be honest, but we do have one new article from Making Star Wars um, that is about a potential flashback to young Luke and Leia. So I'll read out the relevant bits. It's a long article, so you can go and check that out, but I've just picked out what seem to be the most pertinent parts, basically. So yeah. Apparently there will be a sequence that shows a young Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia having an important conversation that will change how we see some of the characters involved. It seems like this moment probably takes place earlier on in the film. Sources were adamant that it plays with our perspective on the events a little of the trilogy a bit. While General Leia was never recast, Pinewood sources say Princess Leia was... Carrie Fisher's daughter Billy Lord is said to play her stand-in for moments that will be augmented with CGI. It sounds like the sequence in question between post-Return of the Jedi, Luke and Leia, has a lot to do with why Leia did not pursue the path of a Jedi. Some kind of vision, premonition, or warning plays with their judgement, sort of like how the events that played out in The Last Jedi between Luke and Kylo. The scant details make it sound like Luke and Leia foresee a problematic future if Leia stays on the forefront of the action on her current path, and the duo misreads the vision. Okay, so that latter part is, according to Jason, more tenuous and it's more speculative, etc, etc. But he still seems to be saying that on the basis of something he's actually heard. So, yeah, how do you feel about the prospect of them including this sort of flashback to a young Luke and Leia, Kirsty? Um, I feel like we've heard about this before, so it's not surprising to me. Yeah. And I think Jason notes that there have been rumours previously about this taking place in the force awakens and the last jedi yeah so it's obviously something that people want in terms of like it being out there as a rumor um the the idea of seeing these characters as their younger selves again um but i guess it makes sense for that to come in the last movie um to kind of give a bit more context for how things happened in terms of ben solo falling and why leia decided not to pursue that part of her life because we saw in the last jedi she clearly has very strong force abilities and mm. can act on them as needed so what's the reason for kind of not pursuing that and of course you can just kind of go with the explanation of well the galaxy needed a general um and, and she was a senator in the meantime as well up until the events of bloodline yeah i mean it sounds good to me and i think it could be very meaningful to see billy in that role yeah same like I like the idea of there being some sort of more mystical reason as well, beyond like the practical thing of, oh, I just don't have time for this. <laughs> like, for why she might have given up the Jedi training. Like, so I do 
like this idea of like prophecies and visions because it does play into that whole mythological aspect of Star Wars that I like so much because like half of mythology seems to be built on people getting prophecies and misunderstanding them and desperately trying to stop them from happening and then in doing that they actually make the prophecy happen um so yeah I like that idea and I think depending on the execution as with all things it could be really cool um I also like the idea of it being a nice opportunity to give Papa Palpatine like some involvement in like all the bad shit that went down like maybe the vision came from him maybe oh, the vision involves him somehow like yeah, yeah maybe. there's so many possibilities so it makes sense for them to kind of keep this quiet if that's what they're trying to do because if you say that, that yeah we haven't recast Princess Leia but actually it turns out we've recast her with Billy Lord in a scene or two that kind of gives away that we're going to see a young Leia as opposed to Carrie's scenes that she was filming for TFA in The Last Jedi. Um, so that says something about the narrative that might be unexpected for some people. So can understand why they'd be keeping quiet about this. And I think it's a nice way to keep Leia involved in the story while still being respectful. And because, yeah, let's face it, who's going to have any objection to Billy, like basically playing her own mother? You know, because that's the ultimate like endorsement of this approach to the character and the story. If her own child is, yes, I want to do this. I want to see my mum's character through in this way. Like, I think it's a good route for them to take. And yeah, I'm very curious to see if it does actually end up in the movie. Um, yeah, it's an interesting point about there being rumours about this sort of interaction going back to Force Awakens. Because we do know that JJ is drawing upon certain ideas that he had for that film. Like, you know, as in certain concept art from The Force Awakens is clearly playing a heavy influence on Rise of Skywalker. So it'd be interesting if there was that kernel of an idea back in The Force Awakens days, and now it's actually being brought back for this final film. Mm. I think what's interesting for me as well is that JJ specifically said at the panel that they wouldn't be doing any CGI with Leia. But obviously, mm. if Billy is standing in, they would have to. Yeah, maybe they met with Carrie. Okay, well, that's... I, I think it's semantics, and I think it's, like, not very... I don't think it's very honest, but I could see them using weasel words a bit, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, that's all assuming that this is true. Yeah, um, of course, which is a big if. Yeah. But yeah, if that is the case, it's like, well, you did use CGI, didn't you? <laughs> Stop lying to us, JJ. What can we believe? <laughs> yeah. And just in the interests of full disclosure, I believe that the first person to report on this being an element in Rise of Skywalker was Jedi Paxis, so the moderator of the Star Wars Leaks subreddit, um, who has had proven leaks before. So it's a source of some legitimacy. It's interesting that two different sources are saying this, mm -hmm. basically. So, yeah, it doesn't mean it's real, but it means it's got substance behind it. Yeah, it means that the rumours are probably out there, but whether that actually pans out in the finished movie is another thing. Exactly. So, it could be a whole, like, Luke Skywalker's hand floating through space. Thing, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, cast and crew can talk about things that actually don't end up in the final movie, and it's not like anyone was wrong or lying. So, so yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, we will see in due course. Yeah, fingers crossed that the next show we record will have a bit more news because yeah, that fabled Vanity Fair spread 
is hoped to be imminent with the emphasis being on the word hope we'll find out either way soon because Vanity Fair will be releasing the cover for their next issue in the next week and it's either going to be Star Wars or not Star Wars (laughs) so yeah we'll find out basically Mm -hmm. hopefully that's very exciting beautiful new pictures but yeah I think we should probably close up here so yeah I'm Rachel you can find me at Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr and at Journal of the Star Wars on WordPress where can people find you Kirsty? I'm Basila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter thank you so much for listening and until next time bye bye